My name is Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames Cast and this is going to be my rather belated look at uh, the year 2012. I know it's kind of fashionable I suppose with um, a lot of podcasts that they put out their best of 2012 episodes like you know end of December beginning of January but um, to be honest there was a lot of films that I needed to have a kind of a quick look at and a, a kind of a reassessment of some other ones before I formulated my list and um, I'm glad to report that over the past month I have been watching many of those films to garner whether or not they were going to make the list and I have now kind of arrived at my top 10 as it were which I was going to share with you but before I get to all that I thought it might be worth just having a kind of look back and reflection on some of the events over 2012 in the world of film and kind of how I felt about them. Now 2012 was a big year for me um, for, for many reasons both kind of personal and professionally it was um I no longer kind of have to uh, work full time. I, my girlfriend and I made a decision that I was going to be able to uh, go part time, and with the time that I had available, I was going to put some kind of effort into actually getting my ass into gear and beginning my own career in film, which culminated in this September with my making my first short film, which I have just completed the first kind of full rough edit of it. Is and I'm, um, you know, I've been very proud actually of the film and. Um, you know, I don't think it in any way, shape or form it's going to be kind of setting the world alight or indeed it's kind of the best short film ever made. However, it is something I can look back on and say that, you know, I, I did make that. I wrote it, I produced it, I directed it, I've edited it. And, um, you know, I, I got the opportunity to do something which not a lot of other people do. And, it, I, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed the experience, despite the fact that it was um, horrific weather for when we were filming. It. And then, you know, I'm, I'm going to do an episode on the making of the short film anyway, but it was a very trying process um, for, for a variety of reasons we'll discuss. But, you know, we got there and we did it. And I can kind of... I, I, it was strange I was listening to you. I'm sure if you've kind of... Um, on Facebook, you might have seen that rather wonderful video someone has made to the narration of Alan Watts, the British philosopher, talking about what you really want to do in your life. And it's quite inspirational. And I, I, I was listening to that the other day and so many people were saying, you know, you know it, it rings so true for them. And in a way, I, I felt like um, I was able to kind of say with some honesty that I had begun to do what I want to do and not what uh, you know the kind of the nine to five kind of demands that we do of life, and it's quite a liberating feeling in many respects. Even though obviously I'm kind of, yeah, I'm not, I'm not on the shortlist to direct the next X Men film or anything like that. There's a very very long way to go, but you know, and I might not ever get there. But it's better to kind of try rather than to sit around all day saying, you know, God, I wish I was a film director and not actually doing anything about it. But that was, I suppose, one of the biggest highlights of the of the year for me. But in terms of kind of the world of film, it, it, it was a strange one this year because. Um, back in, I think it must have been end of March, early April, I purchased my first uh, 3D television due to the one that we did have uh, being relocated to the bedroom. And I think I began to really appreciate 3D this year. And it, it seems to have become now, there's, uh, there's, uh, there's a backlash against technology going on, I've noticed, where you know people sort of like championing the fact that the kind of the, the less tech version of the film they see, you know, the, the, the better. And the example I can give was just come out really with The Hobbit and um, you know people like saying, oh, I, you know, I'm, I'm not seeing this on 3D, HFR, I'm going to watch it on good old 2D in 24 frames, yada, yada, yada. And you know, whatever floats your boat. But to be honest with you, I've um, really began to enjoy uh, 3D. And I think kind of buying a 3D television was part of that enjoyment. And um, I kind of broke a promise that I made myself that I would never watch a film that had been post-converted to 3D. And I did when I went and watched Titanic. Uh, the re recent re-release that's come out and 
Although I don't necessarily think the 3D adds loads to the film, I certainly felt like I was seeing again anew for the first time again. And I, I, I sort of thought to myself, you know, although I'm not, I don't think every film should be converted into 3D, I certainly think there's certain examples where it will work. And Titanic was a pretty fantastic job as well. You could have... If, if they said it had been shot natively 3D, you would have believed it. I, I won't watch things that have been, you know, the, the piss-poor conversions that you hear about. I, I, you know, I do seem to, um, well, I, I have no interest in seeing something like, you know, like the Avengers or something, because uh, I did buy the, the Avengers on the Blu-ray combo disc, and I just popped the, the 3D in for a, for a few minutes, really, and I was just appalled by it. It just looked awful. But I, I, I thought there were some fantastic 3D films that came out, especially Prometheus, which was a film which... Um, I, I'll get to in a bit, but regardless of what I felt about the film, that it was incredible in 3D and on Blu-ray, I, my jaw was on the fucking floor. It was literally like I could put my hand into the television. It was that clear. And of course, we had um, Dread 3D, which I will uh, a bit of a spoiler here, but I will be talking about in my top ten. And that was a, a a perfect example of how a genre film like that can kind of really benefit from that added dimension. But I am quite intrigued as to where kind of 3D goes because there does seem to be quite a lot of apathy towards it from audiences, but the studios seem to be very keen and of course they can make more money by charging you know, premiums for tickets. But I'm interested kind of you know, where directors are going to go with it. And I, I'm, from what I've read, I don't think Ridley Scott was overly enamoured with the process of shooting in 3D. It'd be interesting to see if he, if he uses it again. And, you know, certainly, kind of, there's no rooms of all that. Like I've heard of people like you know Steven Spielberg trying it. You know, quite interesting. I thought that Martin Scorsese uh, shot Hugo in 3D, and that's another one which I quite really enjoyed on th- on Blu-ray. And then the Wim Wenders film as well, Pina, which has just um, arrived in the post from Criterion. That's a that's another film I think that really benefits from it. So, you know, I, I think it is kind of going from the mainstream to the art house, and it'd be interesting to see. Uh, directors getting hold of it and you know, what they do I'm certainly kind of quite intrigued as to the medium's future I do think this post-conversion stuff though is isn't a good thing and it worked for Titanic because you know they spent 20 million um, on the conversion for that but when it's literally this kind of layering that they do it looks god awful and I mean really bad I mean uh, when we were, went to go and watch um, The Hobbit they had the trailer for Man of Steel and uh, that's obviously been post-converted and it looked it just looked awful and I, I you know I have no desire to see it on that and I, I think that's going to harm um, cinema goes because they won't understand you know, people there's nothing on the kind of promotional materials to say whether or not a film has been post converted or it's been shot natively it's normally information you have to find out for yourselves and you know people I think will go tired of that and certainly there's there's a lot of noise on the kind of the online community about 3D and a lot of it is negative I think when it's employed um, well in the case of Prometheus and Dread and certainly you know, when the care's taken in the, the conversion that happened with Titanic, I think there is a lot of scope for it to really add something to cinema. I, just, you know, I, I don't suffer any, seem to suffer from any of these kind of afflictions that people do with their eyes getting tired or anything like that. I think the technology is quite um, unobtrusive in that respect and hopefully you know, in the right hands, 3D really will um, come alive. But you know, that being said, there will always be the naysayers and unfortunately as I'm going to be discussing in a little bit more detail it seems to be the moaners who have the loudest voice on the internet at the moment and I suppose on the subject of film talk in general I think anyone who listens to the 24 frames cast you might have kind of gathered I, I became exasperated with listening to the constant moaning and bitching that goes on on various forums and online communities and it, it, I think it was the Avengers 
um, which seems so long ago now. Where we were back in April or May or sometimes around then, and it was the point where I really couldn't take it any longer for a variety of reasons. You know, number one, you had this kind of shameful bullying of a critic, a female critic online, who dared not even leave a negative review of the Avengers, but actually said the fact that it was just an okay film and. The, Unfortunately, it caused um, an, a flurry of kind of misogynist uh, comments directed at her to the point where they actually kind of took um, the comments sections off Rotten Tomatoes because she was getting so much abuse. And it, it, was, it was kind of a depressing um, incident, really, as far as I was concerned, because it represents as the idea that critical opinion that goes against the kind of the grain is screened down at and it just leads the way to not what I would call film criticism but it's more like film worship than anything else and here's the thing about the Avengers I have I own the Avengers on Blu-ray as I mentioned and I've seen it twice and I, I enjoyed the film I, I did I thought that was fun I still find it slightly um it, 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 it's one of those films where I enjoy being with the characters but I don't think necessarily the story is all that much cop and um, I still don't really understand the central premise of, of of what Loki's trying to do on board that flying aircraft carrier thing I don't know if perhaps I'm just being thunderously thick or in fact that the whole thing is um, quite tenuous but you know, I enjoyed it but I, I didn't love it and the way people were going on about it it was as if it was the second coming of cinema and you know, to give a film like The Avengers five stars out of five, I'm sorry, it's not a five-star film. You might enjoy it to that point, but critically, I just cannot see how people can love it as much as they do. Yet, if you read on online, it was it was genuinely these kind of outpourings of kind of just utter fanboy love for Josh Whedon and what he's done. And I, it, it, it was just bizarre to me that people could could enjoy the film and love it that much. It was it was a thoroughly good. It was it was everything a film that cost that much money, that had those characters, that had someone who I, I think you know is a very talented writer director Josh Whedon. It was exactly what it should have been, which was good. It was it wasn't anything better than that. And I I, I really felt quite adrift when that film had come out. And um, this kind of fanboy sniping that goes on. I think really was encapsulated in John Carter and I made a point of reviewing John Carter last year because it, it came out and it had everything that the kind of the snarking fanboys love to pick on. It had an actor who could be derided for the simple crime of not being A-list. It had source material to compare it against and pick on. It had nitpicking issues from the sands of Mars aren't red enough or it's just like Star Wars. It was just so fucking yawning joke, juicy. And of course, it was you know it'd been up converted to 3D, so people could cry and moan about that. You know, rather than just not go and see it on 3D, they could moan about the fact that they hadn't actually seen the film, but also it was up converted to 3D, so you know they had like loads to completely go on about. And you know, it was a massive flop. So woohoo! You know, let's trash it as much as we can. Only perhaps you know people should actually think about seeing the first film before passing judgment on it, which a lot of people didn't. And, you know, more for them because they're missing out on a film which is actually, I thought, really good fun. I don't think it was anything kind of, you know, special. I don't think it was even aiming to be anything kind of, you know, too groundbreaking. But I, I did enjoy John Carter and I just felt a little bit kind of, you know, sad really. And you know, especially there were some people who were saying that they kind of, they, they found it funny that the film had flopped. And I, I think that really kind of sums up just how moronic 
and worthless the vast majority of people's views on films are. You know, what's you know what's funny about that? You know, I, I don't I don't see it. I, I, you know, having you've been through the toil of making a short film, you know, people dedicate months, if not years, of their lives on a project, and you know, just because it flops, I don't see why that should be funny. But the boringness didn't end there because equally baffling to me has been the seeming obsession with trailer dissection. Now, indeed, I've heard podcasts dedicate a great deal of time picking and unpicking the virtues of a given trailer, in particular Man of Steel, a trailer that had, had me extremely interested in the film. And it would seem I shouldn't be looking forward to the film. I should be sharpening my knife to trash Zack Snyder's newfound lot of Terence Malick films or howling in mock disgust at the fatherly advice given by Jonathan Kent to Kent Jr. is wholly inappropriate, given the fact that Jonathan Kent would never tell his son to allow a busload of kids to drown. Of course, when asked by his son if this is the path he should have followed, the answer from Jonathan Kent is maybe before a cut, so perhaps we might want to wait and see the film and perhaps see the resolution of this conversation before actually making our minds up that the film has deviated too far from the mythology of Superman. Oh no, we can't do that, of course. We have to then go into a launch on an obsessive rant about how bad a filmmaker Zack Snyder is and how offensively awful his films are. I personally love the films of Zack Snyder. I think Sucker Punch is almost a fucking masterpiece. And I don't say that with any sense of irony or sarcasm. But, you know, obviously that's just my opinion. However, I think it's well worth perhaps actually watching Man of Steel before we kind of go back and spend so much time going over what is essentially a trailer, the purpose of which is just to sell the film. Now, I must confess to falling prey slightly to this when I was talking about the new Star Trek trailer for J.J. Abraham's latest instalment in the franchise. However, I do feel there was some credence to what I was saying on the basis that the trailer seemed to be sending me exactly the same experience I had in the last Star Trek film which was a film that I didn't wasn't particularly fond of and the fact that I thought that at least for this one they might try and kind of do something slightly different however obviously I will make up my mind before trashing the film however the trailer did leave me somewhat cold and thoroughly uninterested in the product that will no doubt come the Dark Knight Rises reignited the oh-so-important debate as to what franchise Christopher Nolan should take over next. What about Bond? What about Mission Impossible? What about any film, in fact, because obviously Christopher Nolan is the greatest filmmaker ever? Well, I wouldn't actually agree with that statement at all, and again, this is another area where, because I don't blindly worship at the altar of Christopher Nolan and join in the online adulation you're somehow labelled a hater which of course I'm not I absolutely love the films of Christopher Nolan I think they're brilliant The Prestige was my favourite film of the last decade The Batman trilogy is to me one of the most consistently brilliant trifecta of films I've ever seen certainly not perfect but in terms of mainstream Hollywood I don't think you can actually ask for much more in a trip to the cinema but say Christopher Nolan is one of the greatest filmmakers of all time is a vastly premature statement to make. And I've, I, made this, I made the point last year that if you think The Dark Knight is ranks among one of the greatest films ever made, then quite simply, you can't have watched many films. I feel there's, I feel there's a certain truth to this statement because when you see the people who make these statements, they just seem to watch the same films over and over again. They have absolutely no interest in branching out anything away from kind of mainstream Hollywood films and indeed most Facebook film groups are a near constant loop of discussions about the same films over and over again 
revisiting a classic means going back and watching The Godfather or even possibly Citizen Kane, ask them to watch was Rosalini's War Trilogy and you'll be met with a silence so deafening you can hear the wood growing. Try and inject anything resembling thoughtful discussion into these arenas and you might as well be trying to breathe life into a rock. For example, Ridley Scott's Prometheus, a divisive film. For sure, I was not keen on it at the cinema and on second viewing on Blu-ray, my interest was sparked. There were some quite weighty themes once you dig a little deeper and for sure it was a stunning film to watch if bogged down with a slew of truly awful characters barely able to stay afloat in a screenplay that was begging for someone to apply some good old fashioned logic to it. However, move the conversation away from how stupid some of the characters behaved or the fact that it was not an alien prequel to pastures a little more weighty and again you found yourself more often not the force of the vitriol that the internet anonymity affords the lesser minded. After the film's arrival on home video, many of the same people who hated it at the cinema seemed to watch it again and come back rearmed with even more nitpicks, which kind of begged the question really, why would you go back to a film that you abjectly hate? I suppose it's easier than renting a box set of Jean-Pierre Melville films, why not just watch something again and again and again and then you can display your film love credentials by making all kinds of pointless and completely uninteresting criticisms about a film you don't even like and you kind of get my point that very soon this becomes very 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 boring however nothing could compete with this year than the announcement that George Lucas had sold Lucasfilm to Disney now the first things first is I have nothing but admiration for George Lucas and the technological advances he has brought about in cinema and the fact that of the four billion he received for this deal, he was going to be giving to charity. I think there is nothing but admiration you can have for the man. Now, on the subject of his films, I have a slightly different opinion. I think there's a couple of masterpieces in there, but of course we have to talk about the Star Wars prequels, of which I am not a fan. However, rather than kind of constantly go on and on and on and on and on about them, I'd rather just keep my opinions to myself. If I'm going to watch Star Wars, I'm going to watch A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, and that's enough for me. I'm perfectly happy. I don't feel the need to constantly tell other people how god-awful the prequels are and indeed I'm not really particularly interested in people who do like the prequels because I don't care really anymore I've reached a stage where I'm just not interested in that debate so the announcement there was going to be more Star Wars well I'm a Star Wars fan of course this was interesting news and I think it was one of the is totally unexpected no one there was no rumors that came out about this I think it was all kind of kept under wraps we didn't really have any inclination it was going to happen until it happened and of course I can perfectly understand why this was such a big deal for many people and indeed you know I like I said I am interested to see what Disney do with this I mean let's think about it. it's a Star Wars universe the canvas to do so many different things is it's virtually endless you can go back in time forward in time you can go sideways you know god I, god I hope they don't reboot the oh. You know, that's, that's just thinking about it then, actually, you know, what if we had that? But no, I don't think a world in, you know, Disney, you know, these people know what they're doing. Like, you know, for example, Tron Legacy, I think that's a fantastic film. I, every time I see it, I, I seem to love it even more. You know, these people know what they're doing when it comes to franchises, you know, and I, I think what direction they go to, they can do anything. And the possibilities are really as much as people's imaginations let them. You know, we can have animate well, hopefully a better animated series. I do fucking hate that. But you know, we can have TV shows, you know, more computer games, whatever. 
But the, when the film was announced, the, this first start new Star Wars film is going to be announced for 2015. I think that's a very long way off. I mean, what we were talking like three years at the time or something when the news came out. But already I was beginning to read kind of threats of boycott if certain people set foot near the franchise. You know, there was that kind of, oh, Zack Snyder might be doing it. Oh, my God, we can't have Zack Snyder. His films are atrocious, blah blah Tarantino says he's not in. Well, what a fucking big surprise that was, you know. And, you know, eventually we were going round and round and round until we arrived at J.J. Abrahams. Now, I am not a fan of J.J. Abrahams' films. Um, Super 8 is one of my most despised pieces of cinema ever made. I fucking hate that film with every every atom in my body it was just torturous to get through i didn't like star trek um i'm not a huge i I like his tv series perhaps but i i still think he's one person he's he's better at chucking lots of ideas at the screen than he is you know actually kind of i don't do more cohesive work mission impossible 3 i think is probably his his favorite film that he's done which I, i particularly enjoyed but you know I don't necessarily think he's a bad director per se. This is, he, he can shoot. He can, you know, he can. He makes films. I, I think he's a very kind of um, classical Hollywood entertainment director. I just, I, I just don't think. The, I think the problem is he hasn't had the material yet to to make a film that's kind of you know really up there in the kind of the classic territory. And you know, perhaps with a good team behind him, Star Wars might well be that you know that classic film. Yeah, let's just wait and see. You know, I can understand perhaps why people aren't kind of thrilled about the prospect of kind of Michael Giacconi coming back in. I, I don't really like his work at all, and that Star Trek score is fucking atrocious. And when I was watching this kind of extended trailer thing uh, for the new Star Trek, that that god awful theme tune came in for the film, and I sat there and I was like, oh god, no, I don't think I can take this. I can't listen to that music. And you know, I, you know I'd rather he kind of was was cut, kept at arm's length. You know. There's plenty of other composers out there, and as I said, you know, this is this is the opportunity to really unleash the Star Wars universe. And because you know, perhaps George, you know, George Lucas was quite stuck in his ways in many respects. There was a certain formula that he he had for the films, and perhaps you know, we can get away from that and do something new and kind of fresh and lively. But the the thing is, you know, this this the release date of this film is 2015. You know, and I know it's going to get worse and worse, you know, when this first stills come out and when more announcements are made about the cast. It's only going to get more and more. But already, you know, within days of this announcement, I was bored of hearing about it. And I, I just became, again, so irritated with people going online, you know. Oh, you know, how I love the prequels and you're not going to take them away from me with your hate and all this fucking crap. Do you know who fucking cares? Go and watch something else for fucking once. You know what I mean? Just stop whining on and obviously everyone then gets their prequels opinion out the prequels suck these are gonna suck fucking hell let's just wait till 2015 and watch the fucking film and then make our own minds up then perhaps but no of of course we're not and yeah this is the problem it's only going to get worse so my ranting on this subject will probably uh, grow just as tiresome as the amount of internet noise that comes out in the next two years but what the fuck eh so with all this enthusiasm going on we arrived at skyfall now I enjoyed Skyfall. I wouldn't say it was the best film I've ever seen. I wouldn't even say it was the best Bond film that there's ever been. And it's coming out on Blu-ray this coming Monday, and I will be picking it up for inclusion in my rather wonderful James Bond Blu-ray box set that my girlfriend bought me for Christmas. And no, the Bond um, retrospective has not gone away. It will be coming back with a vengeance very soon, believe me. However, 
I sat there and I watched Skyfall and I thought, yeah, it's okay, you know, it had a one too many scenes in which Bond killed everyone by grabbing someone's gun who was standing next to him. And, you know, I did kind of question the logic of the Heather Bardem character. He seemed to have ample opportunity to do what he wanted to do. I never seemed to do it. Yeah, but I like the fact that we went back to Bond's house and the kind of relationship with him. And it then genuinely felt as if they had really kind of shaken up the franchise and were trying to do something quite new. However, within days, obviously, people were declaring this the greatest Bond ever. And it was a, something like the Avengers Syndrome all over again. We couldn't just say this was a good film. It was a great film that had serious Oscar buzz about it. You know, could you know, could this be the one that gets the Oscar nomination for Best Picture? And you, I just sat there thinking, come on. You know, it was just a good film. You know, it thoroughly enjoyable to an extent, you know, it had a good, you know, Sam Mendes, I thought, was an excellent choice for Bond. And when they announced him, a lot of people don't aren't so keen on Sam Mendes' films. I really like his body of work so far. I think he's a really good director. And I was sort of thinking, you know, what a great person to do it. And the film looked fantastic. And, uh, you know, the cinematography, obviously, was incredible. Loved the score. The Adele song, I thought, was the best Bond uh, song I, I've heard since um, probably... The Duran Duran song. I, I, you know, I did enjoy the scene in the Goldeneye one, but certainly it was a great, it's a great, great track, great title sequence again. But you know, come on, this wasn't a prestigiously brilliant film. It's not kind of award-winning material. It was just a, it was just a good film. Just exactly what the Avengers was. It was just a good film, which is what it should have been. And um, I, I, you know, I, I can't share these, uh, this kind of the undying adulation for it. And perhaps when it comes out again. Um, on Blu-ray when I pick it up I, I might enjoy it again but to be honest as well I did see it on IMAX and I, I, I for a film that was this kinetic sometimes IMAX um, it's a bit much for the old eyes and I, I, I thought um, perhaps it wasn't the best format to watch this on but overall you know, enjoyable film but my god it's not the greatest thing ever but also, as the mainstream was leaving me a bit kind of isolated and cold, I don't think it was a particularly great year for art house cinema either. Now, normally you can kind of rely on the kind of the lesser known joys through scarring the pages of sight and sound. And however, I found myself this year more than once being very bored by many of the offerings. Now, my first complaint may seem pretty petty, but I feel it has some validation, which is to be quite blunt. A lot of slow-budget art house films at the moment all look the same because they are all being made on basically Canon SLR cameras, which have, you know, they, they do look cinematic, but they also have a very specific look. And it was just dawning on me, I was watching a lot of films, and when I was kind of like looking into who had kind of who had shot them and what they'd used, they all seemed to be filmed on SLRs. And I thought to myself, it's quite dull. And SLR films don't have the look of you know kind of like 16 millimeters you know if you watch something like Goddard's Breathless or something like that you know it does look very filmic and a lot of these these films don't that are shot digitally like this you know I, I used the red camera for my short film and you know I, I have spent some time kind of roughing up the image a little bit but I, I feel with a lot of these SLR tech films that they do all sort of blend into one visually now it is a wonder to behold that camera for sure and it's certainly a, a device by which you know, it, it can free up people to go and make films yeah you know, they don't cost very much more than relatively about 1200 pounds i think you can get a, a, a canon 7d for which you know, is more than ample equipment for what you're going to need and you know it has freed people up you know the the stock isn't expensive you just need memory cards and you, know, you can plug them straight into final cut pro there are so many many benefits but 
once you kind of see film after film after film being shot on this format, it does get a little bit repetitive and I think a little bit dull. And, I, and of course, you know, the main thing is the content and just a lot of films I found this year, especially like things like Tomboy and Lesser Cares, which they're all fine films, I suppose, in their own right. They're perfectly entertaining, but I did find um, a lot of them just simply weren't really... I did find a lot of them weren't overly compelling and they felt kind of the stereotypical moans people have about art house cinema a lot of these seem to have and I don't think it was a particularly great um, year for independent film in general I did feel it was a very good year however on the small screen and I have a I, I'm a bit strange when it comes to kind of um, watching TV series I, I normally I can't stand watching them week to week the only one that I do watch week to week is The Walking Dead because quite frankly I don't think I could watch it back to back I think it'd be too fucking boring on the subject of Walking Dead how I, I I feel like we should love this show. I feel like it should be something that we absolutely wet ourselves over. But to be brutally honest with you, I, I find it thunderously boring um, most of the time. It's just, you know, walking along, stop somewhere, hunker down, and then, you know, uh, we're, we're off again. It's just, it just seems very repetitive. And, uh, you know... I am going to stick with it, obviously, because I sort of I, I do I do quite enjoy the kind of the pe the comments people make about it um, afterwards. But yeah, it needs to something needs to happen with Walking Dead. I don't know if it needs like a new kind of creative team behind it, but at the moment I'm you know I'm, it's a three out of five series at the top, at the best at the moment. But I can't watch these shows back to back. So what I normally do is I'll watch the first one or something like that, or not even that. Sometimes I'll just kind of see what kind of the buzz is and go with that and by the blu-ray when it comes out and my god did that come in to its own with the arrival in march of game of thrones season one what a series this is i my girlfriend and i became um box set addicts when this film came out we literally watched we were i think on the we watched the first like three episodes on the saturday and then on the sunday we were up at like something like seven o'clock and we just polished off the rest absolutely fantastic stuff i can't wait your series two is out on blu-ray quite soon i cannot wait to get hold of that because um it's just everything i think i've ever wanted in a tv series but it has a world that is it's just so alive and so different and so interesting and of course being hbo as well they can get away with kind of you know sex murder and violence like you wouldn't be able to do that if it was a bbc series and it just looks like it just looks like one long film it's absolutely fantastic i love it Another series I got into as well was Neil Jordan's The Borgias about the uh, the Borgia family with um, Jeremy Iron playing Cardinal Borgia, uh, sorry, the Pope Borgia. And this was another series as well, which it, I think on the network it shows in America. It only gets something like half a million uh, viewers, but it was renewed for a second series, which is a brilliant thing because I really enjoyed this as well. I've seen the first two series now. Lots of kind of skullduggery and, um, you know, it's very campy. And uh, Jeremy Irons' performance... Um, it's i don't know if it's brilliant or kind of strangely awful perhaps a bit of both but it's certainly a series i found thoroughly enjoyable breaking bad appears to be heading towards a pretty epic conclusion um it seems so far away when i first saw uh, breaking bad that first kind of six se uh, six episode series run and from where it's um, kind of come from and where it's to now I, I never thought walt was going to turn into what he has and i can't wait to see the end of that another series that i got into was homeland which 
I've only watched series one and I'm slightly nervous about series two because a, f- a few people, I, I've heard the, 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 the phrase mentioned, um, jumping the shark. I don't know what that's in reference to, but I know a lot of people said they're not going to carry on watching it. And um, I have to confess, I thought as a kind of, were, were, were it a kind of a mini series and perhaps had been kind of concluded, I thought it had been incredibly effective. Obviously, this kind of Manchurian candidate type um situation going on but I, I really enjoyed it a little bit slow perhaps to begin with but I certainly think it found its feet and went to places that were incredibly um, surprising to me and I although I'm intrigued for season two I do wonder about the longevity of Homeland I, I I can see it being a bit like Heroes in a way starting off with so much promise and just kind of full fading away because how many times can you kind of flip and kind of change the story around and like I said I think you know as a, as a mini series perhaps it, it may have been more effective good to see Damon Lewis back on screen as well I really do enjoy him also I went back and saw the new series of Spartacus minus the tragic death of Andy Whitfield the original Spartacus who sadly passed away through cancer and again this is another series which um it, it's bizarre because the first the first episode we, my girlfriend and I watched of the first series and we were like oh god is this going to be any good and we were sort of like sat there thinking oh you know it's a bit cringe the you know the blood and the the way the characters are talking but I think it's come back into its own I think it's a great fun series Spartacus my only kind of criticism of the series was uh and of course this is series um Spartacus Vengeance as a well, I, I suppose, it, is it the third series? Or because there was the prequel, there was you know, God to the Arena and this. So, I don't know, whatever series is, Spartacus Vengeance, we'll call it. But a main criticism of it was, I think it felt a little bit small in scale. And I always imagined Spartacus to have a slightly bigger army than he than he has shown in the uh, in the series when he was kind of fighting on the the mountainside. And I do, I do know quite a bit about the history of Spartacus, so it was quite nice, nice to see them... Uh, Abseiling off Vesuvius, as, as was apparently the uh, apparently what happened. I I have a suspicion. I have a suspicion that might be um, something of a myth, but whatever. I I, I certainly enjoyed it. I, they are going to do one more series, as I understand, um, War of the Damned, which I think has already begun airing. But I'm, in a way, I'm quite glad that they're going to be airing. Um, sorry, they've announced that's going to be the last series because. Um, you know, we all know where kind of Spartacus can go, and I don't like it when kind of producers kind of drag these things out for longer than they have to. So, certainly very intrigued to see where that goes. Broadwalk Empire as well, season two. Uh, kind of, there's so, so many people. The comparison makers go, well, oh, this is um, it's not, it's not the um, the Sopranos. You know, well, of course it's not the Sopranos. It's meant to be a different series, but I actually think it does have a lot in common with the Sopranos, um, in terms of kind of the characters and the stories. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing either, because I, I, you know, I've said it before. I say it again. If you're going to tell me the same story, I, you know, I'm not opposed to seeing going on a journey that I've already been on. It's just how how people do it and how they put it off. And certainly, Broadwalk Empire. It's had its surprises as well in season two, you know, and I do really enjoy it. It's, it's Steve Buscemi as well it's great to see him have a kind of a TV series where he can kind of sink his teeth into it but indeed I think all the cast in Broadwalk Empire are interesting and I think season three is going to be really really interesting um, especially with what happened at the end of series two and some of the storylines that were being set up now to a lesser extent another series that I've got into was the western Hell on Wheels which it's no Deadwood for sure but I think this is certainly one which um, it might take you by surprise if you watch it it's uh, it looks fantastic that's the main thing and um, it seems to kind of not be quite sure um, the direction that it's going in um, 
However, perhaps my kind of greatest experience of the small screen last year was the discovery of the films of Ken Burns. Now, obviously Ken Burns has been around for many, many years, especially I'm sure he's more famous uh, in America than he is in the UK. But I watched his series, the, um, the Civil War last year, and I have since bought everything he has ever put out. And his films are incredible. I, 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 someone asked me the day to compose my uh, list of my top 30 directors, and I was doing it. And, they were gobsmacked because there was no Steven Spielberg in it, but this chap called Ken Burns, and I was like, no, this, he, he is possibly, as far as I'm concerned, I don't like to kind of make bombastic statements because they're invariably a load of bollocks, but I think he's possibly one of the greatest documentary filmmakers of all time, period, and he's certainly working today. I, I, I tweeted once um, during, I think it was, um, I can't remember what series I was watching, I think it was about the... The, the depression no um sorry prohibition and i said i tweeted that he could make a documentary about the fluff under my on my carpet and it'd still be interesting and i'm pretty certain he could just amazing and i'm going to do an episode on him i think i've actually sort of started prepping it and uh, i'm watching all the films again so overall good year i think in television there's a lot lot, lot going on and um you know it, it kind of reminds me of how lucky we are really to be in this age where we can you know, you know for 30 pounds you can pick up an entire season on Blu-ray, and I, mean, yeah, I remember I, I used to collect uh, Star Trek tapes, and then eleven pounds for two episodes it was. And now, you know, you, you, you can, you know, for eleven pounds you can buy some series. And you know, so, certainly, um, we should consider ourselves very lucky. So, without any further ado, I am going to get on with my best of list for 2012. Now. I think it's some just a quick aside. My criteria is the film has to have had a 2012 release date in the UK, which means that there are certain films which aren't going to be anywhere near it. Now, for example, Les Misérables is a film which, had it have been in the had it been released in 2012 in Britain, it would have probably made my top ten. In fact, I know it would have made my top ten, but it wasn't. It was released in January, and that's why there's no Django Unchained that was released in January. Zero Dot Thirty was another January. Lincoln another January release. Cloud Atlas, which I cannot wait to see. Um, that's not actually even out yet. It's out in about two weeks. I know it came out about four or five months ago in America. So they might well make the 2013 list. I don't know. We'll have to kind of wait and see. And just to let you know as well, these films aren't in any order until um, the top three. Some of them I have spoken about before on previous episodes of the 24 Frames cast. So I will put in the show notes on the blog where those are. So here we go with my best of 2012. Okay, so at number 10, a film I've already discussed on the 24 Frames cast, and it's it's a film which I think it's probably worth um, getting a little bit of perspective on, um, because I think things have got a little bit hyperbolic surrounding this, and it is Pete Travis's Dread 3D. Now, the reason why I say I think we need to get a little bit of perspective is that Dread 3D is... It's, it's not by any stretch of the imagination, I don't think, a particularly great film. What I think it is, is a really well-made adult film. And it's quite refreshing to have a film based on a graphic novel that we don't have to kind of spend hours doing, going through the backstory, that we don't have to kind of have, you know, many, many minutes of setups and all this kind of thing. It just essentially gets on with the story and tells a very kind of 
and it tells a story which is essentially just a kind of a typical day for Judge Dredd. Well, perhaps not so typical, but it's, it just feels like this is kind of like, you know, we just jump in and get a move on with the story. There's no faffing around doing anything else. And what I think um, Pete Travis and uh, Alex Garden have created is an adult world this is you know it's not aimed for kind of you know teenagers it's definitely you know it's a a r-rated or 18 certificate film it doesn't pull any punches whatsoever and for once it seemed like the kind of the studios were actually making something for us rather than opposed for a huge wide audience and I think in a way that was probably to Dredd's detriment because the film unfortunately wasn't a particularly big box office. It has been a massive seller on Blu-ray and I did kind of think that was going to happen. I think this is one where the word of mouth will you know, certainly generate a lot of income for, for some time. But seeing it again, I, I bought the Blu-ray the other day. Quick note on the Blu-ray as well. Um, you get screwed if you, if you get the Region B one. Um, you don't get it's not as good a package as the um, the region a release which had 7.2 surround sound i believe this money had a 5.1 soundtrack i mean the image is still very good but I, I do think they kind of um we've definitely got the short end of the stick on that one but i watched it again and having seen as well the film the raid um which shares kind of quite, quite a similar narrative and i, I just really thought it's such a great little genre piece as well and a, a really creative use of 3d and i i think this is where 3d really kind of comes into its own in films like this because it it does add a certain depth to the film obviously but it kind of feels like a kind of exploitation film that kind of benefits from this type of kind of dimensional aspect to it and when I was watching Dread again I just sort of I sat there and I thought this film does everything right that the Stallone version did wrong and it just strips away all the kind of the nonsense and the kind of the the more kind of like cerebral aspects of other superhero films and just go straight for the jugular and, and yeah it's gloriously violent and I really enjoyed, you know, Lena Hadley as well as the, um, as Mama, the kind of the, this drugs overlord in this tower block. And I, you know, I've got most of the Dread um, graphic novel volumes, which are all coming out. You can buy them, you can pick them up actually, they're about £12 for, um, you know, for, for, for about 400 pages. They're absolutely brilliant. I've got a few of them. And this film just gets Mega City One so well. And it even, I think it goes further. I think it probably has a slightly more kind of a bigger canvas to go well, certainly, I suppose it more has a um, freedom to kind of go into kind of the seediness and the disgustingness of Mega City One. You know, we see various people being killed, and you know, sometimes they're kind of just squashed to death. Other times, you know, the dread will just fire a rocket in their face and things like that. And I just, I just thought this film got it, and it was you know, it is yeah, it does have its moments of humour, and the action looks incredible. I, I love the way in which the the, the drug slow mo kind of. The effect it has on the, the screen and it kind of all goes into this kind of rather, rather psychedelic 3d stuff it's absolutely brilliant stuff and as well you know, it has a score by paul leonard morgan as well which i really enjoyed and it's this like industrial metal and it, just every element of it i thought worked but again you know i don't think it's a groundbreaking film in many respects perhaps it is in a kind of way in which you know the producers and pete Travis have obviously kind of aimed this film at you know a, a very adult audience and in that respect i suppose it is but you know this is certainly a stripped back kind of warts and all graphic novel adaption that just works really well for me and it's not massively original it's just an incredibly good fun film and you know i really hope that we do get um a sequel to it unfortunately i don't think we're going to and even though i think cumulatively it's box office i think it did make its budget back eventually but and it has been a huge seller on blu-ray and i don't know if that'll be enough to um, kind of 
spark the interest of the producers to, to make another one. I don't perhaps you know, the budget was only $45 million, which isn't a great deal. And it certainly looks like it's a film that costs a lot more than that. And I think that's kind of really a testament really to how far kind of technology's come that we can kind of make these kind of worlds on, you know, a lot less money than we used to. But I really hope that we do get a dread sequel because you, know, you look at some of the other franchises that are still going, things like, you know, Resident Evil and shit like that. They've got like five films out of those. And, uh, it's just the world of dread is so big and there's so many stories it can go you don't even need like a three part of it you can just do dread on another day out and you know i, I think the, the formula is is there in this film to create something rather special and i just hope and pray that we do get another dread because as well carl urban um in the dread character just just seems to nail it and we don't you know dread doesn't take his helmet off and he doesn't in this film and it's just that it's little touches like that which I think it's not sort of a fanboy appeasement I just think it's kind of people who understand the source material and know what dread the character is and that's what they've done with this film so it's my number 10 not brilliant by any stretch of the imagination but still I consider it to be one of the one of the best kind of days out I had at the cinema and I, I put it on um, Facebook actually when I went to watch this film I sort of two well it was myself and a few other people but there was these two old ladies there literally I mean, they must have been in their 60s and they were laughing and clapping throughout it and I think that's the type of uh, reaction that Dread has on audiences and you know good on them for going to watch it but I just really hope that um, it's not the last time I go and watch one of these films at the cinema Okay, so next up is a sequel to a film which came out back, I think it was in 1992, certainly um, some time ago. And this film has been in the pipeline for many years. It's, it's taken a very long time to film and I'm pleased to see that the result was, wasn't quite as spectacular as its um, prequel, but still pretty incredible nonetheless. And it was Ron Frickle's Samsara and... Although I don't think perhaps it kind of reached the kind of the level of wonder that um, Baraka did, I certainly think it is possibly even more beautiful than Baraka, and I think that might be to do with some kind of advancements in technology we've had since then. But I think what I loved about Samsara was that it was filmed on 70mm, and I can honestly say, I think Paul Thomas Anderson used 70mm to film The Master, on, and it... it and I kind of felt I wasn't sure to what extent he was using that as a sort of um, for the kind of the I suppose the kind of the retroness of it or you know in a way was it there to sort of kind of you know stoke the interest of kind of um, you know film aficionados I don't really know that it, it, it's I, I didn't see it on seventy millimeter so I, I don't I don't know, you know for anyone that did you know what, what did it look even more spectacular than it did I don't know but. Samsara is one of those films that the format, I think, was really kind of invented for and the best application of it, which is just huge films and that give you this incredible sense of scale and perspective. And I think the only other format I can think of that kind of comes level to achieving this is probably kind of like IMAX. And Fricko and his team have, I think, an understanding and a reverence for the format that I dare say, you know, even David Lean would be quite proud of. And non-verbal cinema is an acquired taste for sure i'm just finishing off the, end of the next criterion roundup and i'm going through those kind of um the quiet side trilogy and so sometimes the, the juxtaposition of images and themes might not be too subtle and certainly in the case of samsara it isn't but i think it's a genuinely thought-provoking work tackling everything from the mass production of food to the greed of religion and poverty of its faithful 
Now I can see why some perhaps would think that it's kind of like telling us thing that we already know, but I think by looking a little deeper into the images and thinking about them more, there are kind of more avenues of thought than perhaps we might think. And I don't think Samsara in comparison did have as strong a thematic thread as Baraka, and indeed in comparison didn't quite seem as original, although it is easily the most beautiful film I saw all year. The kind of the sad thing about Samsara was the theatrical release was fairly limited. I mean, it played for, I think it was about, I think it was actually one night in uh, Manchester where I went to go and watch it. And then, when I went there as well, the, the, the screening was absolutely packed as well. You know, there obviously were clearly were people who were interested and apparently they were turning people away. So why it didn't get a wider release, I don't know. And especially in the age of digital, you know, we don't even need to, um, you know, send huge film reels around. And... I just feel, you know, all the screens in Manchester, you know, to have it play for one night on one. And fair enough, it was a big screen, stuff like that. You know, it wasn't one of these kind of small box ones, but I'm very disappointed by that, I think. And um, overall, I think Samsara you know, it offers kind of the best and worst of our species. And it's both hopeful and pessimistic at the same time. I think, I think some might scoff and call it pretentious, although I wager they don't even know the meaning of the word. And they will just kind of simplistically sneer. But for those who do get into it I think there is it's a treat of a film Samsara to watch and I, I, if you're kind of raised on the kind of the, the traditional structure of three act cinema I think this film might be something you know it's definitely something new to think about it, it shows you a perspective and a style of filmmaking which it's not very common anymore and I, I, I certainly hope that this isn't the last film of its kind that we see because it's definitely there's so much going on I think where you know because to me, I think Samsara is a work of art in the purest sense. You could take a still from it and hang it up in a gallery and it will amaze and inspire. It is also, bar none, the most stunning Blu-ray I have purchased all year. With a 7.1 soundtrack, an incredible image, it is reference material your system cries out for. Much like Baraka in that department as well, because that was another Blu-ray which I bought. I did, a, did a, an episode on that, actually. And um, you just sit there kind of... It, it, it's, it's hard to go back to DVD sometimes. On the occasion I do go and watch DVD films, I sit there thinking, oh my God, you know, um, I, I, it, it spoils us Blu-ray, I think, and um, certainly this is one of the best you will ever see. And um, just a few things as well um, about it. Is, you know, one of the things that I, I do like, and I, I think it kind of like, it just dawned on me really when um, I was reading more about the production of the film. You know, this was, um, it was the... the images were kind of turned into ProRes files and it was actually edited on Final Cut and I just think it's incredible you know, I've been editing my film on Final Cut and it it just shows I think how you know lucky we are in this kind of technological age where we live in where you know I'm making a film I've, I've made a film that's been shot on red and you know um, edited on Final Cut and you, know, you do feel that this kind of you know, what you can have in your own home really is you know it's up there with the best and I it's just so liberating, I think, if you are kind of a filmmaker wanting to get out there that, you know, even the kind of the very best and, you know, apparent professionals out there are using kind of Final Cut and technology, I suppose, um, 70mm cameras aren't readily available. You know, certainly we can um, we can go out there and make our own Samsaras on a kind of a micro scale, which is actually something I'm doing at the moment. Um, there's a small, there's a patch of wasteland that I walk through and I will go into town in Manchester and I'm, I'm, I'm just currently... Pr- uh, practicing around with my um, SLR camera and I'm going to be making a um, film basically I'm going to go down there every week for the next year and uh, film this kind of landscape in transition and uh, just as kind of basically it's more of an exercise in make, trying to make a kind of a semi kind of documentary film but I will obviously once that's ready post the uh, final product up 
Okay, so next up and film number eight. Now there were two brilliant man versus nature films that came out in 2012. The first was Joe Conahan's The Grey and the second was David Nettam's The Hunter. Now deciding between the two was quite hard. The Grey was criminally missold as an all-out action film in the UK, a kind of Taken versus Wolves. It was enough to put me off before I discovered the film on Blu-ray and the positive word of mouth. Now I loved The Grey and it was well in my top 10 until I saw the Hunter. Now, it's often that we look and indeed crave originality in cinema, but I'm a firm believer, as I've said before, a good story well told doesn't need to break new ground. It just needs to simply keep me gripped and above all interested. Where you were you to break down the hunter into its component parts it would for all intents and purposes be a western it has the outlaw the lawless town the homestead the posse and the kind of the wilderness as well as an exploration of masculinity however once i watched the hunter and the credits rolled i kind of my girlfriend was a little bit dismissive of it and i kind of i knew what i'd watched i'd really really enjoy but it wasn't until a few days afterwards where i was still thinking about that the fact it has such a kind of simple story, kind of unobtrusive direction and an underplayed and subtle screenplay. And at times it's incredibly beautiful and the film just began to kind of seep into me and I began to love it even more. Now, William Dafoe is not a particularly typical lead and he gives one of his best performances in recent years. The role doesn't really kind of push him too far, but what it does is play to his strength, where, which are his undeniable charisma. What starts out as just another job for a hunter becomes something far more, and although the film has one too many endings for my tastes, almost veering into the realm of Schwartz, this was for me, for the most part, a meditative and compelling work that also looked beautiful to boot. Now I could perfectly understand why some would say this is a fairly average work, it may lack the thrills and indeed depth of the grey, but I think this is a year where my cinematic sensibilities seem to kind of veer towards the understated, and it's another year and in another year this film may not have made the cut, however for 2012 it was the perfect tonic from the visual pollution that often so blighted other more mainstream Hollywood films. I would also say as well that it had possibly my favourite score of the year by Andrew Lancaster and it's um, it's not a particularly bombastic score, it's very much underplayed but it's very evocative and I, I think when I'm, it was certainly when I've been down um, the kind of the the aforementioned wasteland I was talking about in Manchester to kind of you know test my camera and things like that I've been listening to this to kind of kind of get into the the mindset of what I'm doing and I really um found it to be on kind of on my playlist rotation quite a bit but certainly The Hunter is a film I can definitely worth checking out it didn't have a kind of particularly wide cinema release um and it, it wasn't a, even a kind of a big success anywhere, but I think it's a film which you might you might sort of rediscover in a few years and kind of really enjoy. And uh, it might go one down as one of those ones which, um, over the passage of time, will kind of get a uh, bigger reputation. Certainly looks incredible as well on Blu-ray. Okay, at number seven, this is a film I talked about in the Criterion roundups, and I'm not going to go too much into it again. It was Akis Kurosaki's Le Havre, and um, this was my kind of art house feel good film of the year. And um, I've gone back to it since and watched it again, and I, I really enjoy this film. I think it has such a charm to it that um, it, 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 it's. I, I'm not a huge fan of kind of, you know, feel good type comedy films, and I, I feel this one just nails it. It has a certain kind of. Um, I suppose a, a skew whiffness that Aki Kirizaki brings to it, where it kind of rises up from the kind of the perhaps the slightly familiar story, and is something which it, it's a modern day fairy tale, and that's how I described it in the um, 
Criterion Roundup, and it, in that perspective, it works really well. And I, I just, it, it make it, it made me kind of, it makes me laugh, and it kind of it has an emotional heart to it. And I know a lot of people don't particularly like the ending. Um, I certainly did. I think it was, uh, you know, we live in a kind of a pretty kind of bitter, cynical world, and I think this is certainly one of those films that's a kind of a good pick me up. Switch on the news at the moment, and obviously, well, the news is hardly a kind of a. Uh, the, a, a joy fest of sorts but I, th- I think this is one of those films where in the kind of today's kind of you know financial armageddon that we're in this is one of these films that will kind of pick you up and make you laugh you know it's good to see as well this was you know it was a reasonable box office hit as well in europe and i think um you know it's good that Ak- people like akira's are going to kind of you know, still enjoying success and hopefully we'll kind of get to still make films i can certainly recommend it out um brilliant criterion and brilliant um artificial eye release here in the uk so there's no excuse really not to check this out. I think it's, it, it, like I said, it's not the most original film. And I think that I keep, I keep saying it's not the most original film, but um, for a lot of these films I'm talking about, but this is certainly one where um, it did, it told a very simple story and very effectively, and I really, really enjoyed it. Okay, at number six, another film I've already talked about as well, which is Marcus Schlinzer's Michael and going back and watching this film again um i really i I was kind of blown away i think i I appreciated this film a lot more on the second viewing than i did the first michael is the story if you don't know i have spoken about it on another episode of 24 frames cast you can find it on the feed however is a story of a man known as michael obviously who kidnaps a child and keeps him locked in his basement whereupon he kind of sexually abuses him all kinds of awful things like that however that kind of really is the tip of the iceberg to what this film is really about. If I if I was to tell you it is at times quite funny, it might seem a fairly shocking thing to say, and indeed it is a very shocking film at times. But I think it is certainly worth watching it. It's so compelling as to kind of what direction this film is going in, and the the, the sort of the, the relationship that Michael and the the boy have, um, boys called Wolfgang, and it. You're watching this film and in a way they're kind of like a normal father-son type relationship and at times it does veer into that type of relationship almost kind of like they're brothers as well at times but of course there's this undercurrent of this absolutely evil thing that Michael is doing to this boy and um, it, it, it's strange because there was also a few cases in the recent years of you know, where we've had kind of young people who've been kidnapped and what normally comes out is this kind of the relationships they have with their captors isn't this kind of um, uh, domineering one often. I, I can't remember what the girl's name was. It certainly wasn't the the, um, the one where the father had, I can't remember the name of her now. It wasn't one where the father had been prisoner, but there was another one where you know she used to you know, physically and, men, you know, and verbally abuse her captor and eventually this guy went and killed himself. But very very strange and i think it's a film which deserves to be seen it's a very daring film it's it's one of those films i don't don't think you know it could be made outside of of europe certainly perhaps i don't know in the kind of the the far east or something like that but you certainly you won't see this kind of coming out kind of or anything like it perhaps coming out in america anytime soon the only kind of film i think which kind of really kind of went into that kind of territory was the woodsman you know a brilliant film for sorry kevin bacon but certainly michael was a lot of food for thought and a very entertaining film and it is horrend it is a horrific concept it has some moments of just uh, just make you feel sick but it also has other moments in where you know you, you are laughing and it is quite funny and I, that's quite strange it's a very strange sort of um reaction to have to this type of thing but certainly worth working out there's a lot of um 
food for thought in it, I think. And it's, it's a challenging film, but I think challenging in all the right ways. And certainly I can recommend checking it out. Okay, so next up at number five was another film I've spoken about before on the 24 Frames cast, which was Kevin MacDonald's documentary about Bob Marley, simply titled Marley. Now, I won't go too much into it because I've already done that before, but it's another one where I've gone back to and I realise just how entertaining a film this is and what a great documentary filmmaker Kevin MacDonald is. I I think he really, um, he's able to tell stories in this medium, I think really in such a compelling and thought-provoking way and I, I he's a kind of di- a director who I really like to be to be honest with you because he he kind of he, he goes from kind of one you know kind of genre to the next really I suppose he does make fiction films things like um, The Last King of Co- uh, sorry The Last King of Scotland and The Eagle and things like that but he also I think perhaps he's, he's, his best genre is, is working the documentary film movement I think you know sort of like you know, one day in September um, I certainly would be touching the void my only kind of problem with Touching the Void was I actually did the subtitles for that film and I just watched it so many times and I, I think I will go back to it and watch it again quite soon actually because um, uh, it's it, certainly you know, it was such a good story. It's also as well, I can um, he's, he's written some decent books as well. He's, he's written one about Emma at Pressburger and another one as well called Imagining Reality which is a kind of a book about documentary that he wrote with Mark Cousins and um, yeah, definitely worth checking out. He's certainly someone who I... Uh, really love I, 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 he, he, he's certainly a director and someone just involved in cinema who I think always has something kind of compelling to say also as well if you can check out Life in the Day which was a film that he uh, produced where he, he produced with uh, Ridley Scott and it was about um, uh, basically a day in the life of everyone kind of submitted films in, on YouTube and that's a really great I, 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 love, I love projects like that um, and that was certainly something that I uh, particularly enjoyed so at number five, Marley, get this on Blu-ray because if you like Bob Marley's music, which I do, I, I, you know, it's certainly the um, kind of the HD audio certainly serves those songs incredibly well. Okay, so film number four is another documentary, and this time by German filmmaker Werner Herzog, and it was his film about capital punishment into the abyss, which I saw quite early on um, in 2012. And this kind of came out as well as part of a TV series that was on Channel 4 called uh, that you make called Death Row, which followed which about four people who were kind of currently on death row and their kind of the, the lives and the crime that they had committed. Now, I think it's kind of fair to say that I have a very, very um, strong opinion on capital punishment, which is I think it is one of the most morally abhorrent acts that any society can commit upon its system. And I don't care what anyone says. I think it is thoroughly barbarous. And it's kind of got to the point now where, um, you know, I, I, I think if, you know, I do like going to America. How I don't think I could visit a state in America anymore that had the death penalty. I feel that strongly about it. We were meant to be going um, on holiday to a country in Africa. I can't remember what it was now. And then we looked up on the internet and they were about to kind of execute a load of people for kind of very kind of... Um, petty crimes basically and I said to them this is that there's just no way I could ever go there I think it is just an outrage and if, if were it to be introduced in Britain I would I would have to leave the country I, I think that is how strongly I feel about it or become involved in um kind of militant civil disobedience I just think it's an it's just a disgrace that's countries that call themselves civilized practice this awful um punishment now 
one of the things about this film, why I think Werner Herzog has pulled off such a coup with this film, is that he does not make a film about the case itself. He makes a film about the people involved in the case. Now, I think the brilliant thing about the film is that I think this is an open shut case. The, the young man who, the two men who are convicted, one Michael Perry who gets a death sentence and another one called Jason Perkett who receives a life sentence. I don't think there's any denying that these two have committed the murder that has taken place in the film. And it is a horrific, pointless, evil act. I, I, that's one of the reasons why I think Into the Abyss it works so well is because this isn't a case, it's not like kind of the Thin Blue Line where we're talking about the kind of the mechanics of a case or something like, um, you know, um, Paradise Lost with, you know, the West Memphis Three. This isn't such, it's not an exploration of the crime or, or whether or not it took place. I think we can safely say these two boys are guilty of, of, of what they did. And with that out of the way, I think it opens it up far more objectively for us to start actually thinking about this practice of killing people and putting them on death row. Now, Herzog says it incredibly well when he actually meets um, Michael Perry, which is that he doesn't like him necessarily, but he doesn't think that he should be sentenced to death. And I think what this film shows is really the tragedy of what is going on. And it never loses sight of the fact that there were victims to this crime because this is one of the things that we talk about when, when it comes to kind of the, the death sentence when you kind of engage people in dialogue is when you talk when you sort of say you're against it and things like that people then kind of I, I often find the argument people use against you is that you are somehow suggesting that the person who's committed the crime shouldn't be you know should receive like you know like five years and then be released on their merry way I don't believe that at all I think you know um, you know, Michael Perry deserves to spend the rest of his life in prison. I think that is an adequate punishment. Uh, you know, you know, put him in a small cell or whatever. You know, basically deny him. I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty certain. You know, once you're in prison, or kind of the the, the 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 simple joys and pleasures life are denied to you. That is a pretty awful experience to spend your rest of your life in that environment. I think that is it goes far enough. I don't believe you know, and I do believe in very stiff prison sentence. I, I think um, people like who who kill people when they're drunk driving I, I think you know something like five years I think they should get like 20 years in prison if not more I think it's murder you know I in that respect I do believe in the kind of the penal system and the fact that we should have strong sentences however I think sentence people to death this kind of as if some way that killing someone is going to kind of close the loop of suffering it, it's, it's ridiculous and what this film does we, we see the victims' families and we see, we see the pain and the life sentences that they've been given, which is this kind of eternal suffering caused by the actions of these people. But it is all underpinned, I think, by Herzog. And he does... Um, he, he's a documentary filmmaker. Someone like Kevin MacDonald, for example, who I just spoke about in Mali, you don't really see him in his films very much. Herzog gets involved in there and he's certainly part of the fabric and the DNA of what makes his documentaries so successful. And you know, he does have that kind of that, that you know very distinguished voice and he he comes across as very much a humanitarian, um, Werner Herzog, and he manages to inject this kind of quirky humour into the film. And it, for, for the subject, I think, which is so serious, obviously, and so shocking in many respects, that does help kind of ease the tension in many cases. And as I was watching Into the Abyss, I, I, I just began to feel that really what kind of Herzog is saying in this is that this is, it doesn't solve anything, this practice. I think it's, you know, it's not a deterrent. Um, it, it's, it really is a form of 
eye for an eye type retribution and there's a brilliant moment where he he asks someone in the film do you think jesus would agree with the death sentence and i think that's such a pertinent question because i don't think there's any denying that the most religious pious countries and certainly states in america are the ones which kind of are so pro the death sentence and i don't personally understand that as an atheist you know one of the things that when i debate religion with people is they always talk about the forgiving and the wonder of jesus in the new testament this is a very old testament way of looking at things i've read i've been on websites before where people have tried to try attributed and um you know say that jesus would be a um, backer of the death sentence i i, I think it's completely against his teachings it, it, you know well i don't believe that existed but I, you know from, from what everyone tells you and then I don't understand why people are so pro-death sentence and they always use this example what if it was your child blah blah you know well you know I could still honestly say if someone killed my child I, would, I, I wouldn't wish death on them and nor would you know and I've, I've reversed that question before to people and I've said well what if your son killed someone and they're like oh yeah you know, I, you know yeah, yeah he should be sentenced to death I can guarantee you in that circumstance you would do everything you can to try and get the culpability away from your child and it's very interesting kind of um one of the line the line i work with in local authority is children's services and it was quite frightening um a few weeks ago i was part of a presentation in which we saw mri scans from neglected children compared to those of children who have been um had you know normal upbringings and the actual different in difference in brain size was shocking and the mutations and the problems an underdeveloped brain causes later on in life can range from lack of empathy to you know, addiction and one of the especially in the series as well death row one of the accomplices in all of the cases is poverty and these are what we should be looking at and these are what we should be thinking about and getting these types of debates out there in the public realm i think the death sentence is a very convenient way of ignoring all those aspects as to what goes on in these crimes and you know, it's this very it's hard to have rational dialogue i find around these issues people kind of have this attitude you know that life is constantly about decisions that you make and you have to take responsibility for and indeed it is however it is not an equal playing field all men are not born equal we you know if your mother and your father were crack addicts and you were basically neglected during your life, it is highly likely and highly probable that you will follow them on later life and with kind of drug addiction becomes a predisposition to commit crime. These are the issues that need to be discussed, not whether or not we should just get these people and kill them. And you know, obviously, you know, people from all walks of life um, commit heinous crimes. However, it is a fact that many many convicts in america country america is a country that um penal system is spectacularly harsh and it thought that the hammer falls on people from the lower end of society the, the you know the working classes and that's just a, a, a simple fact and it's the we, what i find quite shocking is and um i was listening to a debate the other day on um a conservative talk radio station in america which was basically saying and one of the kind of the arguments um being uh brought forward by what the host was that was it not and this is a conservative talk radio as well and he was saying was it not time that we began to seriously look or sorry america seriously looked at the problem of poverty on society and i was shocked really by many of the people who were calling in because basically it was this it was i was talking about before everyone's born equal it's just you know it's their decision to go into crime blah blah it's their decision to become crack addicts and i think it's just you know the fact that kind of you know if these people end up on death row well that's their fault and i, I think that's a, a 
an incredibly callous way of looking at this debate. And Into the Abyss was, I think, the film that really affected me big time. Because, you know, one of the other films which, you know, I saw this year was the, the concluding part of, um, you know, Paradise Lost, you know. And let's, let's think about, you know, Damien Eccles, you know, that's, he, he's been on death row for many, many years. And, you know, within, at one time he was two weeks away from being executed. And I think it's fairly obvious that Damien Eccles is an innocent person. And even if, you know, I was saying one of the most vile uh, defendants of capital punishment I ever heard was trying to tell me that, um, you know, the percentage was high enough of guilty people. And if those who were innocent, well, God will know they're innocent. Uh, that, and that, that type of logic is is something that needs to be kind of kicked out of discourse because it's, it's just wrong. And, you know, we all see, you know, how the, the miscarriage of justice that occurred with the kind of the case of Damien Eccles, you know, and, you know had, had people have not stood up, you know, that he, I, I firmly believe had people have not kind of campaigned for his release, he would have been executed in that case, just kind of swept under the carpet. And like I said, with this film, we know uh, it's so obvious that Michael Perry has committed the crime, even though he says he's innocent, I, he's, it's so obvious. And I think it's very telling when you see um, the family of the people that have been killed, you know, their reactions um, to the death sentence, it's not triumphant at all. And I, I, I certainly think this film needs to be seen and needs to be thought about, you know, and I've met many people who consider themselves very liberal, who are pro-death sentence, you know, everyone has an opinion on it. Mine, as you can probably tell, is quite passionate and vehemently, I think it is. Um, if I was in charge of the UN, I would impose sanctions on countries that imposed it, put it that way. I just think it's, uh, it needs to be nipped in the bud, and you know, Unfortunately, it does have a degree of popular support, which I think will mean it'll be around for a very long time. But certainly, this is a film which, if you like Werner Herzog, I think this is you know, pretty much up there with one of his best documentaries. And I've heard people say before that they find Werner Herzog, he gets too involved with his films, and the films are more about him. I don't agree with that at all. I just think he, what he does is he directs them. He, he's like a conductor in a many way. And we see the subjects through Werner Herzog. And I think that's, he, he's always, he's a person who seems to have a very interesting perspective on life. And, you know, I can, I can listen to that voice all day. I think you know, he does have a, a presence and a charisma, which I think elevates his films above others. So number three was a film I spoke about in the last episode of the 24 Frames cast, and I'm not really going to go over it much again, and that was Bellatar's The Turin Horse. Certainly a film that, um, having gone back to it as well, I think my appreciation for it has grown even more. Certainly um, not for everyone, but I, as I said on the last episode, I think if this is going to be Bellatar's last film, then I think it is a fitting swan song to cinema. Um, anyway, and it, it, it's, it's nice, I think, if you know, if, if this literally, is, as he said, is this is you know, he's, he's kind of said all he wants to say in film and you know fair play to him to that you know he's not going to kind of go on making films if he doesn't feel like he um you know has anything to say and i, I think that's quite admirable i think it's quite sad in the way because i do like bellatar films but um certainly this was one which um kind of took me by surprise still a, a beautiful film i love black and white uh, cinematography and certainly in this case it, it just shows really i mean how this film you know, just gets kind of snubbed, don't they? Really, at the kind of the mainstream awards ceremonies, and you know, it's just because people don't, you know, not obviously not enough people see them, which is a pity because it will easily triumph anything. I think that we'll see nominated for you know, best cinematography at the Oscars, and um, a very unsettling film as well. I find, I, you know, having gone back to it again and um, you know, thought about it some more. I was walking through Manchester the other day, and the rain was absolutely howling down. In fact, I saw like a sheet of rain coming down the canal toward me, and uh, you know. 
it, it, it did feel like a sort of an end of the world moment and that's the kind of vibe that you get from uh, the Turin horse mesmerizing stuff I mean it, it, it seems really kind of bad because you know, I know someone that watched this film and they were sort of saying oh you know the highlight was um, a potato being eaten and uh, uh, it, like I said I think it will kind of test the patience of uh, many viewers but if you can make it through to the end and perhaps kind of get over the fact that this isn't something like you can it's not the most entertaining films you're going to see there's a lot here to enjoy certainly this is a film I think which will stay with me for a very very long time um, get hold of the artificial wide blu-ray as well because uh, it's um, a pretty incredible uh, piece of work to be honest with you and one which uh, I'm very pleased to have now in my collection Okay, now my number two film of the year. And this was one which up until recently was my favorite film of the year. Now, it might seem, I suppose, with some of the films I've talked about this, that I'm kind of like snubbing Hollywood this year. And that's certainly not the case at all. Um, there were many films, uh, mainstream Hollywood films that came out last year that I really, really enjoyed. However, this one was the one which stayed with me um, and shone, I think, amongst the others. It was a film which I had didn't really have a great deal of expectations for, and it certainly was a film that came with a very ingrained and vocal fan base. I was told repeatedly that I should read the books before I watched this film, and I was told that there was no way that the film could ever do the books justice, and I, I'm quite pleased I ignored all that and just went into it with, on my own terms and had a thoroughly good time. And one of the most, I, I genuinely believe, it's one of the most intelligent mainstream films um, to have come out in recent years. I think the only kind of film I've seen which um, I, I think has kind of as much kind of weighty punch behind it um, to come out in mainstream Hollywood was, was something like Constantine, which is a film which I know a lot of people despise. I think it's um, a minor masterpiece and I might well get to it one day. But this is certainly a film which had me thinking and it entertained me, it surprised me in many, many ways, and I just thought it was a triumph from beginning to end. And of course, that film was Gary Ross's The Hunger Games. Now, when I was speaking to a lot of people about this, they they, they sort of thought I was taking the piss at first and was kind of like waiting for me to kind of say The Dark Knight or um, The Avengers and things like that. And, you know, I wasn't, I genuinely believe The Hunger Games is... Um, and should be really celebrated as one of the best science fiction films in recent memory. And like I said, I, I, I've heard of the books. Um, loads of people read them, so they were brilliant. And for whatever reason, I never, ever got around to watching them. But what it was I loved about The Hunger Games was, firstly, uh, the world that this game, that this film takes place in, I thought was very well conceived and actually felt like a lot of films you don't get an idea of the society something you know, it's kind of hinted at in films like avatar and things like that but i like it when i have a world before me it's one of the things about um from like terminator salvation which i feel like kind of didn't really really didn't kind of um set up the kind of the world that well it didn't explain why certain things were the way they were you know how is it that you know you have this kind of disheveled resistance who still seem to have whopping great military bases and sometimes they live underground i just didn't get an idea really of what the kind of like the, the what was going on in that world and what i loved about the hunger games was i felt that this it, it felt so well realized 
and so believable to an extent that I bought into it almost from the off. When, when my, girl, my girlfriend was obsessed with the um, computer game Fallout 3 and I just loved this kind of the sort of the world in which kind of Katniss play, uh, lives in played brilliantly I think by Jennifer Lawrence this kind of run down kind of almost sort of pre-industrial almost type of existence indeed I, I, we both remarked how much it reminded us of the other film um, Jennifer Lawrence in um, Winter's Bone and that was one of the things I loved about it was because you had this idea of this kind of two social structures in this world you have the kind of the privileged and the haves and the haves not who live in this kind of disheveled world and as the film went on I was remind it obviously plays in the world of things like kind of the X Factor and kind of reality of television and it just felt like that this had kind of taken that concept to a very frightening and in a way I suppose I, I, I don't think this kind of thing will ever happen however we think kind of how now we kind of consume media and disasters and suffering and you know you can watch it anytime you know you can switch your, t your phone on and you know look at the news and you know beam straight into your handset is uh you know, war and suffering and poverty and these things I do believe kind of do desensitize um, people and it was one of the kind of the, the inherent themes going on in the Hunger Games was that the fact that you know, for the sake of entertainment you know, these so so-called elite kind of people who are kind of you know superior to those around them will actually watch this for fun and when I'm watching the Hunger Games I'm thinking about films like Rollerball and that's another film which I think is criminally underrated it's you know, and, and that's a good thing in my opinion when you're kind of being reminded of films which you have a great deal of affection for and in a way I think The Hunger Games is a kind of a rollerball for this new you know, kind of new generation I think it's an incredibly intelligent film really well directed by Gary Ross and I, I'm, I'm really kicking myself I didn't actually see it at the cinema I actually bought a purchased it blind buy um, on Blu-ray and it was a, you know, one of those ones where uh, it, was, it came out in the first reason I was walking through the supermarket and it was like 10 quid or something on Blu-ray and that's actually cheaper than um, paying for my you know to, for both of us to go to the cinema and you know, once you kind of get everything you know it's like a 20-30 quid trip or something and I thought well at that price point I thought well you know what you know the cover didn't really I didn't really like and I just sort of thought oh you know let's just buy it and see what we think of it and, and you know I'm so glad I did because I just had a thoroughly good time with the Hunger Games and I, I thought to myself there's no way we're going to kind of see um, kind of the violence that I think the film was building up to us. I didn't think it was going to pay off in that respect and it did with the plum. I, I was just so um, gripped and shocked by it and I, 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 I'm not genuinely shocked by films anymore. Well, I don't tend to be shocked that much anymore by what I see in film and th this one certainly did and it was just obviously I think Jennifer Lawrence in the starring role as Katniss I thought was brilliant but there's also such a good um, supporting cast around her kind of like Lenny Kravitz as this kind of like agent who's trying to and literally I mean as an entertainment agent almost who's kind of like trying to kind of tutor her so she can kind of um, you know, garner favour with various sponsors so they can kind of provide her with kind of um, things that might kind of aid her when she's out fighting and it, you know, it has that kind of computer game I suppose kind of reward system about it but you know, people like Stanley Tucci, Donald Sutherland, uh, Woody Harrelson who I really really enjoyed and I thought it looked stunning as well The Hunger Games and the cinematography was by Tom Stern and I and I think that was kind of a mark really of the kind of the seriousness by which they've taken the film you know it's not although it, I think it's quite aimed at the young adult market I feel like The Hunger Games um, 
the reason why it's such a success is because it does take itself quite seriously and um, it, it, I think it needs to I think there is a bit kind of behind it there are some pretty kind of weighty themes going on and I sort of thought to myself that having kind of and one of the things I was thinking was it's very easy to be surprised or presently surprised when you don't have any expectations for it but having gone back to the Hunger Games again um, it only I think my kind of appreciation for it only increased and that's to me you know such a uh, positive sign that this is a film which I think I'll be enjoying for a lot longer and the other thing as well um, budget wise I think I heard the budget was about 80 million on this and when you compare it with you know, again a film like Terminator Salvation which had a budget of what something like 200 million um you know 78 million obviously or 80 million or whatever is an enormous amount of money however it, you know, it i think it does show you don't need to spend 200 million on these types of films you know you can kind of keep things within the kind of realms of reality and you know, it was a huge success at the box office almost 700 million dollars as i understand it's one of the biggest hits of the year and rightly so i think the hunger games was easy as i said i think it was the the kind of the more intelligent blockbuster that I was looking for. Yeah, I don't. I don't think we really. You know, it came out quite early, part of last year. And I don't think, in my opinion, at least, it wasn't tops. You know, certainly, you know. Um, I suppose it's no spoiler to say that you know the Dark Knight Rises hasn't made my top ten list, and you know I will easily take this over that film any day. And in summary, it's a film which I think is a very modern film for the modern generation. And I, for one, I cannot wait my for the next one. And I hope you know it's out. I think it's, I believe it's out in November. And um, yeah, that is my, my most highly anticipated film release of the year. And I'm glad as well that they're doing them away from the kind of the summer uh, kind of like blockbuster um, slate because. Um, I'm, you know, releasing a film in March, you know, it kind of preempts all that kind of thing, and doing it in November as well, as it will with the sequel, it gets away from that kind of um, rat race, I suppose, and it, I think it'll allow it to be its own thing. I personally cannot wait for it, and um, like I said, this was my number one for almost the entire year, and I was, I, I didn't think it was going to be surpassed, which of course then moves me on to my number one film of 2012. This might not come as a great surprise, and certainly if you listen to the episode, I talked about this film, but my number one is Once Upon a Time in Anatolia. Um, this was the year, I think, where, I think, you know, obviously, I think this was a year where a switch went in my head, and I just liked things a little bit more downplayed, and this was a film which just ticked every single box for me. Um, a bit like the Turin horse, um, it, it might drag at times, I suppose. But once upon a time in Anatolia, um, I, it's just everything that I love about cinema is in this film, and you know, it's not a kind of in-your-face genre piece. It's so subtle and so underplayed, and the central performances again. I know, you know, I, I can only sort of just shout from the rooftops what a great performance it is by Mamahet Uzna as Dr. Kermel and I just sat there and when I'm watching things like the Golden Globes and the BAFTAs and you know you're seeing like you know I went to go and watch Lincoln with Daniel Day-Lewis and you just look at that performance and you know don't get me wrong it's a fantastic performance that um, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis gives but I still wouldn't say it. it doesn't touch the work that's done here and 
it just really annoys me that you know films like this don't get the recognition that they truly deserve because I personally I, I, I've, all of all the films I saw none compared to this you know it's a five star 10 out of 10 A grade incredible piece of cinema and I went back and I watched it again the other day and free from the expectation where I was sort of waiting for things to kind of resolve themselves or to be a little bit more familiar to me you know in, in terms of kind of genre convention because that's the thing about this film you, I'm not really kind of quite sure what arena generically it's playing in and you realize it doesn't matter it's just its own thing that does its own thing and you know you, you what what you expect to see from it um, isn't there and I, I for one I was just absolutely uh, mesmerized going back to it again and I, it's you know obviously it's something like almost just under three hours or something like that but um the time whizzed by this time around and i was just left kind of almost kind of deflated perhaps that i could never come up with something like this and you know nothing as intelligent and you so i, I was thinking you know of, the, of this decade so far this is hands down the best film i have seen possibly if it you know one it one of my favourite films of all time, f for sure, and I'm not going to kind of repeat myself again. If you want to you know, hear my thoughts on this, go back and listen to the episode I talked about. It was, I think about three episodes ago or something like that, and you can kind of get a more in-depth um, look at my kind of you know, my thoughts on it. But I really um, implore anyone to pick this up on Blu-ray. It's quite cheap as well at the moment. I think I've got mine for about six quid off Amazon, so it's uh, well worth checking out and. It was. It was, it was I, I honestly didn't think the Hunger Games was going to be surpassed. I was so kind of blown away by that. And when this came along, and part of me, perhaps to put the cat amongst the pigeons, was thinking perhaps you know, I might you know go with the Hunger Games number one. But then kind of you, know, I sort of thought no, this is you know, I've got to be kind of a uh, true to myself here. And I think I'm not. I'm not sure any film could have beaten this. To be honest with you, um, I'm just so annoyed that I didn't watch this at the cinema. And I was due to go and see it and something came along and I had to kind of back out and that the, the next week it wasn't on and it, it just really, and I, I, I don't, I don't think, I'm, I'm, I'm always glad I didn't know how disappointed I should have been at the time for that happening. But overall, Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, my film of 2012, hands down. And I suppose before I kind of sign off on this episode, I do want to give a brief kind of, you know, just to, just some of the other films that I saw, which um, kind of I particularly enjoyed in 2011 the aforementioned the dark knight rises again really really enjoyed this i saw this twice actually it was the only film i saw twice and um at the cinema sorry and uh yeah it, it, perhaps on another year it would have made the list but i sort of feel like um i didn't think it was a kind of a, a radical departure from the kind of the, the, the nolan batman films i certainly think that now like now this trilogy is complete it's one of the most rewarding trifecta of films I think ever put I know everyone likes to do that kind of like you know the what's your top you know what's the best trilogies ever but you know I, I can't really be asked playing in that arena but you know it's certainly up there I think is one of the best sort of series of films I've ever seen um just so so epic I think on many levels and it surprised me um The Dark Knight Rises in, in a way that I didn't think was going to happen I, the way the sort of the story unfolded and the kind of direction they went in it just got bigger and bigger and I think you know Kevin uh, sorry Christopher Nolan kind of kept it all together so well it was a film as well I think so it, it, it attracted a lot of kind of the nitpick criticism that I absolutely kind of despise you know how is it he got you know did, how did Bane get him to that prison yada yada I fucking cares you know what I mean it's a comic book film and um it did what it did perfectly a, a, 
the, the only slight kind of caveat I have was the ending. I was a little bit sort of unsure really about the kind of the, um, quite how it all worked. And I sort of thought in a way kind of Christopher Nolan was kind of trying to have his cake and eat it in many respects. But needless to say, um, I think it's a film which will uh, probably be um, the topic of discussion on a lot of Facebook groups for a very, 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 very long time. And um, although I think I've kind of like thought about it enough now, I'm going to kind of... Uh, go back to them all one day on blu-ray and have a thoroughly good time with them certainly enjoyed it on the imax as well this film blew me away what a format that is and uh, i think I, I think i sort of prefer the imax format as opposed to um 3d perhaps almost and uh, i'm quite glad that my beloved hunger games franchise uh, certain portions of that have now been filmed in the imax and i will surely be there okay another film was a documentary that i really enjoyed called the imposter and this film um such a creative documentary in many ways and I, it's a very produced documentary and I think that's the point that a slightly strange word for it but um, I thought Bart Layton did an incredible job kind of making this almost unbelievable thriller and indeed unbelievable is um, certainly one of the words which is best to uh, describe the kind of the thematic elements of this film thoroughly engrossing stuff um, uh, perhaps I don't know. It might have made my top ten if I'd had a, if I've kind of watched it a couple more times. But I, I just sort of upset on the ones I'd picked. Um, Prometheus as well was a film which I know got a lot of people talking, and I didn't particularly enjoy this film um, when I saw it at the cinema. I, I think perhaps my reason for that was um, I, there was something of a tragedy that had happened with uh, one of our friends uh, the day. I think the actual morning I'd gone to watch this, and I perhaps wasn't in the mindset to um, sit back and just kind of like. Uh, soak up the film but having seen it again on blu-ray I, I i do like prometheus i think that I mean, i'm going to get to it as well with the ridley scott retrospective but um it, it was a film which was very divisive with a lot of people and you know everyone was sort of saying i think one of the argument was it wasn't the film that they wanted it to be and it it you know it was trying to be its own thing i don't agree with the view that this prometheus is its own thing i think it tries to be I, I think its main problem is it doesn't know whether to be its own thing or a bit of a prequel or what. I, I think that's part of the problem. It's a very muddled film to me. And um, although having you know, watched it again, it's such a stunning piece of work to look at. I mean, it's just incredible, really. I think, you know, Ridley Scott really needs to kind of do some more science fiction. I'm praying he does The Forever War because that is one of my favourite science fiction novels. And I'd wish he'd just get away from you know, these fucking. You see him like linked to these shitty projects all the time, like you know, like Monopoly and fucking a Blade Runner prequel, sequel, whatever the fuck. You know, just do do the Forever War, do it in 3D. Because from what I've heard, he wasn't overly keen on the whole 3D process, and um, I, I certainly think he he uh, he probably made one of the most beautiful looking 3D films I've ever seen. Um, the Avengers again. This is another film which we've talked about again, 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 again. Really enjoyed it. But, you know, again, I, 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 I cannot agree with this view that somehow this is some kind of masterpiece. It really isn't, in my opinion. It's just, you know, a fairly solid uh, piece of work. Um, one film which I'm a little bit still unsure of, and that was The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey. Again, listen to the last episode for my thoughts on that. Um, didn't love it as perhaps much as I thought I was going to, but certainly still kind of quite enjoyed myself um the life of pi was another film that um wasn't quite what i expected again i hadn't read the book on this one so um i didn't really know uh fully what to expect and um i won't deny it um i was waiting for the tiger to start speaking 
and I thought it was going to be that type of a film and it certainly wasn't. This is one I think I will go back to. I can't wait to buy it on Blu-ray. Um, simply stunning use of uh, 3D as well in this, really creative. The only thing that really annoyed me actually um, was the fact that uh, the aspect ratio changed during the film and where it should have got bigger it actually went smaller on my screen and it really pissed me off that the um, the projectionist didn't he either didn't know or didn't care really about kind of um, sort of using that aspect ratio change to its full effect and I, I was a little bit but the film geek in me was a little bit uh, disappointed with that one film which I'm sort of quite anxious to go back to was um, Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master because this was probably my most anticipated film of the year and it really didn't do much for me when I've seen it and I had a feeling as I left that this might be one that I will go back to in a few years and um, enjoy um, or so you know certainly appreciate a lot more than I did the first time round I it just something wasn't off something was a little bit off about that film whereas when I watched There Will Be Blood and you know indeed these other films I've, I've loved them instantly this is one that I didn't and I'm um, I'm perhaps wondering if there's you know I need to go back and see it to sort of you know without the weight of expectations possibly and um, try and see it on its own terms again perhaps a little then this one kind of did surprise me quite a lot because I don't like comedies a great deal but this film absolutely had me howling and it was Seth MacFarlane's Ted and oh I I don't know I don't even know if I could call this a guilty pleasure because I, I genuinely think it's a really good film um what can be funnier than a teddy bear that snorts coke and has an obsession with the film Flash Gordon I I, I just loved it from beginning to end and certainly um uh, I sort of thought, are my critical faculties off here? And I thought, no, this is actually bona fidely a hilarious film. So um, certainly check it out. Because eh? they've marked it as this kind of stupid film. And it is, I suppose. But um, I thought there was a few things going on there which certainly reminded me of aspects in my uh, own life. Not that I have a magical teddy bear, but uh, certainly my kind of react, but my relationship with my best mate has um, uh, at times caused conflict with uh, people around us. And certainly I think this was a film which resonated with me quite a lot. Um, the Grey, again, that was a film which I thought was going to make my top 10 and it yeah, uh, eventually got um, ousted by The the Hunter. But I, this is definitely Joe Carnahan's best film today. And um, that Liam Neeson performance, uh, I, I thought he should have been, um, if you're going to kind of, I suppose if you're going to lower standards for the Oscars, I, th I thought certainly this was a performance which really was very, very moving. And uh, you can tell he was bringing a lot of his own self into that. And um, certainly I think it was something that resonated with me quite a lot. Uh, Chronicle was another film, a found footage film um, of that subgenre, which I you know, quite enjoyed. Um, it, it, there were elements of it which perhaps I thought um, weren't handled that well. But as a kind of play on the whole kind of superhero thing, I, I thought this was a pretty pretty decent affair actually and certainly uh, you know, highly enjoyable um, creative use of that kind of genre and um, hopefully you know, this will result in kind of bigger and better things for Josh Trank. Okay so that is it for my 2012 roundup. Um, I can only as well thank you all um, over the past year because the amount of subscribers that has um, the show's been attracting increased massively in 2012 as has the amount of feedback that i've received from people and it's been very encouraging you know, do send in the emails it is um certainly very um humbling sometimes from the kind things that people write in and the fact that you know uh, based on kind of recommendations that i make you know they kind of go out and 
source films and it, you know, it's, it's really why I do this podcast it's you know obviously kind of all things like this are kind of like a labour of love to an extent and certainly um, you know I really do enjoy the fact that people from all over the world seem to kind of enjoy what I'm doing and I think you know, what, what a lot, it's, it's quite strange because a lot of the people who have contacted me um, have been saying that they've kind of wanted um, you know slightly different kind of podcast that doesn't just kind of talk about the kind of the most what's in the cinema that week and certainly some of that I'm going to I am going to try and do more theme shows this year it really has to kind of you know I appreciate we do kind of you know a lot of criteria and stuff and I'm still doing the criteria and things I'm just going to do an omnibus episode as well I'm not kind of forgotten about that it's just quite annoying sometimes because the months do tend to move quite quickly but there's going to be plenty more to come um hopefully as well there'll be another announcement relating to another podcast I will be working on very soon so thank you all very much keep subscribed and also keep um you know keep listening to other podcasts as well like this you know things like the midnight movie cowboys um the film um, podcast um Criterion cast, the auteur cast, all brilliant shows that I enjoy thoroughly. And, uh, you know, if you, you do enjoy this, I think there'll be a lot on those for you to um, sink your teeth into well. So many thanks again. Thanks for listening. And um, there will be many, much more to come in 2013.